This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Stealth Biotherapeutics sought approval for its experimental therapy to treat the ultra-rare and life-threatening condition Barth's syndrome, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration said it wouldn't review its application because it did not consider it having an adequate and well-controlled study that provided evidence of effectiveness. The notice was part of a history of interactions between Stealth and the FDA that the company said was characterized by inconsistent guidance as it moved from division to division within the agency. We spoke to Rene McCarthy, CEO of Stealth, about the challenges the company has faced in seeking FDA approval for its Barth syndrome therapy, the lack of consistency it found within the agency, and why this could have a chilling effect on the development of ultra-rare disease therapies if left unaddressed. Rini, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here, Danny. We're going to talk about Barth syndrome, stealth's efforts to develop a therapy to treat it, and the regulatory challenges of developing a therapy for an ultra-rare condition. Let's start with Barth syndrome. This is known as a mitochondrial disorder. For listeners not familiar with it, what is it? Uh, That's a great question to start off with. So Barth syndrome is an ultra rare genetic disease. It's maternally inherited. Um, It essentially is a nuclear genetic defect um, that affects a mitochondrial phospholipid called cardiolipin. Um, So the way it manifests is, you know, severe cardiomyopathy, essentially heart failure, um, severe exercise intolerance, growth delays, um, neutropenia, which is being prone to infection. Um, and very limiting from a lifespan perspective. Is this a condition that progresses over time? It does progress over time, but it has periods of greater intensity. So for example, um, babies, infants, 85% of these children die by the age of five. um, And that's likely due to kind of immediate metabolic stress in infancy. If they survive early childhood, the next highest risk period is puberty. Um, and, and again, this is a mitochondrial disease. So think about metabolic stress of growth, um, which, which poses a lot of stress on these children, often putting them back into heart failure. Um, and then, you know, as they get older, certainly the skeletal muscle weakness and the fatigue are progressive over time. And most of these patients, again, if they survive early childhood, um, won't make it past their third or fourth decade of life. What treatment options exist today? And what's the prognosis for someone with the condition? So there are no approved therapies for Barth syndrome. Um, It is an ultra rare disease. It affects less than 150 people in the United States. 
Um, part of the, you know, maybe part of contributing to why it's so rare, rare is the fact that it is so very lethal in early childhood. Um, even, you know, you know, even when when there are miscarriages due to this disease, for example, as well. Um, and so the prognosis is poor. Um, and again, in all cases, this is a life limiting disease. Uh, no patients are known to have lived a normal lifespan. Uh, how is it generally diagnosed and is part of its small population the fact that we may be missing patients who are out there? Possibly. Uh, you know, diagnosis, once it's suspected, um, can be done with, with essentially just, just a blood spot um, or there is a, it is a genetic mutation, so genetic testing can pick it up, but it obviously has to be suspected because it's not on newborn screening panels. Um, unfortunately, what has happened more times than I like to think about in the small birth community is that one child will have expired of the disease and then a sibling is born and it's then expected. So sometimes it's it's really only suspected if there's it's known to be a family trait. Stealth is working on a number of different conditions that involve mitochondrial dysfunction. Its lead experimental therapy is elamipratide, which is in development for a number of conditions, but Barth syndrome's the lead indication. What is the therapy and, and how does it work? Yeah, so Ellen Mipertide targets the mitochondria, which you'll remember from your biology classes is the powerhouse of the cell. Mitochondria are involved in a number of rare genetic diseases, but they're literally involved in many disease pathologies, even common diseases like heart failure involve mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, our compound is targeting a phospholipid called cardiolipin, which is essential for normal mitochondrial structure and function. So again, thinking of this as the powerhouse of the cell, if, if the structure's not right, uh, you're, you're not gonna be making enough energy and you're actually going to be producing too much of a toxic byproduct called oxidative stress. So our, our drug essentially stabilizes this key building block of the mitochondria called cardiolipin um, to normalize mitochondrial function. What's known about elamipratide from studies that have been done to date? Yeah, so it's an interesting development pathway. There have been over 150 peer-reviewed publications looking at elamipratide in many different animal and cell models, um, again, in diseases as common as heart failure or as rare as some of these genetic mitochondrial diseases. In clinical trials, certainly in Barth syndrome, we believe we've seen compelling signals, but it's a very small patient population. Um, we've done studies in a larger rare mitochondrial disease called mitochondrial myopathy, where we see that patients with nuclear genetic mutations seem to respond to therapy with improved exercise tolerance. And we've seen signs of improvement in vision and dry age-related macular degeneration. In October 2021, Stealth received a refusal to file letter from the FDA. This is a notification the agency makes when a company is seeking approval for a novel therapy, and it notifies the company it will not review its application. The concern was that clinical studies the company did involve too few patients for the agency to make a determination on the efficacy of the drug. What were the discussions with the FDA leading up to the filing and how extensive were the discussions? What, what did the FDA say it would consider as adequate evidence? Yeah, so our FDA journey, Danny, has unfortunately been quite an odyssey. Uh, we started in the Division of Neurology Products in 2019, which is where our IND had been submitted years earlier. 
Um, they, at an at a end of phase two meeting, actually transferred our IND over to the Division of Gastroenterology, which is somewhat unprecedented to have the switch that late in development. Um, then the Division of Gastroenterology reorganized into the Division of Rare Disease and Medical Genetics with an associated leadership change. And eventually in 2020, we, um, or 2019, we asked um, to have a consult with the Division of Cardiology. So within, within the space of two years, we were essentially, you know, looking and talking to four different review divisions at the FDA. Um, the guidance was not consistent across review divisions. Uh, and certainly we've had been encouraged to do certain trial designs that then other leaders or other personnel and other review divisions didn't like. Um, we at one point have were told that we should submit the NDA um, by the Division of Cardiology because it would essentially be unethical to conduct another clinical trial in such a rare disease. It's almost impossible to generate the level of rigorous you know, evidence with so few patients that the agency would typically want to see. Um, but then two weeks before our scheduled NDA submission date, we were contacted by the agency and told, you know, no, we think you need to do another pre-approval placebo-controlled trial. So there's there's a lot of back and forth and kind of mixed messaging, um, different guidance about different trial designs. I, I do think that as we sit here today, we, we continue to treat these patients over time. This was open label at this point. And some of the signals in objective endpoints, like cardiac endpoints uh, are reaching levels of significance that the agency is essentially articulating a path forward on an accelerated approval basis, but it's definitely been a long journey. It, it strikes me that that's a fairly unusual path to be tossed from one division to another. What was the justification for doing that? So the division of neurology products told us that they thought that the division of inborn errors of metabolism and gastroenterology would be a better division for this program. Um, certainly we had had recent approvals in that division with Bernura. Uh, we were again, similarly looking at an ultra rare patient population, exploring the use of things like natural history controls for them. Uh, so, I, so that was the rationale we were given for the first switch, which took us completely by surprise. And, and it does cost time um, and delays, as you can imagine, when you're switching to different review divisions. Um, then there was an internal reorganization of that division into rare disease and medical genetics and some leadership changes that occurred. Um, for us, we requested the consult to cardiology because we were seeing this emerging cardiac signal, which we thought would be better interpreted um, by heart failure specialists. But you're right, it's very, very unusual. We've seen therapies for ultra-rare diseases approved. You mentioned Brunora, that's one example. Uh, Zokinvi is another for progeria that comes to mind. These studies involve patients around 25 patients, if I remember correctly. Why was the company unable to do a larger study? Right, so we did a placebo-controlled crossover trial, which enrolled 16 patients with Barth syndrome. That study was recruiting over a year. At the end of the day, the principal investigator, who is at one of only two global worldwide clinics for Barth syndrome, you know, her perspective is that we enrolled the only 16 patients who would have met study inclusion criteria. So there just aren't very many of these patients. It's very challenging to recruit patients. And at the time, there was another clinical trial of another 
old drug repurposed that was being run in Europe. And so ex-U.S. patient population was also fully utilized. So I think that was part of our challenge. In the absence of conducting larger studies, were there discussions about using things like natural history comparators or synthetic patients? Yeah, so we did do a phase three natural history control trial where we took the data from our open label extension patients and we prognostically matched in as robust a fashion following FDA guidance, as you can imagine, um, to historic controls. And that trial met its primary and most secondary endpoints, um, showing a greater than 100 meter improvement on six minute walk test, which was essentially, you know, a more than 25% improvement for these boys from their baseline improvements in strength and in balance, um, as well as improvements in cardiac function. Uh, The FDA's dislike of that design in in our setting, which marks a departure really from the precedent set in Bernura, um, was that most of our endpoints were effort dependent endpoints, right? If you try harder, for example, maybe you can walk further. And so the FDA felt that you can't ever control for placebo effect with natural history controls. And that was their, the reason that they, they didn't actually even cite that study, which again, did meet its endpoints um, in the refusal to file notification. Did the FDA offer you any path forward other than doing a larger study? At various points in time, um, and repeatedly, we were encouraged to take the patients remaining on open label extension off drug in a randomized con- um, withdrawal trial when we agreed to do that study before even submitting the NDA. So w- during one of the times when FDA said, you know, submit, but no, don't submit, we agreed to run that protocol. And again, we were at that point in a different review division and the FDA said that that study design would not be informative. And so we shouldn't conduct that trial. So no, at the end of the day, the FDA did not give us a different path forward. Um, So we got the refusal to file notification and we met with the FDA again um, about really trying to come up with like a new placebo-controlled pre-approval trial design. But even then, the powering expectations we were discussing with the agency led us to conclude that we really wouldn't be able to recruit or complete that trial in any reasonable time period, right? And, and, and we have to pay for these trials. So, you know, there has to be some investment thesis behind this, which was getting increasingly challenging. Um, so that's really where when we, we closed out the open label extension, saw, you know, a much more significant improvement with longer therapy and heart function and went back to the agency to talk about accelerated approval, which is, which is where we are now. Given this is a condition with fewer than 150 patients in the United States and stealth is looking at other indications for elamipratide. Why start with Barth syndrome? Why not pursue one of the larger indications first? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think this was a situation where we were approached by patient advocacy in 2014 um, and again by the only multidisciplinary center, which is John Hopkins in the U.S. that treats this disease. And they both independently asked us to do a trial in Barth syndrome. The genetic defect in Barth syndrome directly affects cardiolipin, which is the target of our drug. And our perspective at the time was we can do a small clinical trial. This is a single center trial. And if it doesn't work, you know, we have a number of other indications that we're also pursuing where you're doing a more traditional path of phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. We kind of got stuck in this situation where we didn't see 
statistically significant results in the original placebo controlled treatment period. It was too short with three months, but we were hearing about life changing impact of the drug with longer term therapy and open label extension. For example, the investigator has sort of graded five of the eight patients who continued into the open label extension, you know, over the long term is no longer having any signs or symptoms of disease. They're able to do things like go to school or work after school jobs or even full time jobs, which is somewhat unheard of in this disease. And so given that it was very hard to walk away from the patient population, which is what brought us into this regulatory journey. We're in this emerging age of precision medicine. The conditions you're pursuing for elamipratide all involve mitochondrial dysfunction. Is there any way to combine patients with different diseases and define the common mitochondrial dysfunction to demonstrate improvement that way? It's a great question, and we've we've tried that. So if you think about a disease like heart failure or diabetes, right, the reason we need such huge clinical trials is there's always variability within patient populations. The same is true even in ultra-rare diseases like Barth syndrome. So you're even more concerned about a homogenous patient population when you have so few um, that you're treating because the way stats work, you don't have much room for variability. So I think it is hard to introduce too much heterogeneity into these trials. Um, In the setting of mitochondrial myopathy, which is skeletal muscle weakness, exercise intolerance and fatigue due to either mitochondrial or nuclear DNA mutations affecting the mitochondria, we saw that heterogeneity in a phase three trial where one subgroup of patients with mitochondrial DNA mutations really had a very large placebo effect and it, and it sort of it, it nullified the, the drug effect in that phase three effort that we made. So we did try that by putting different patient populations together. I think our lessons learned coming out of that trial because we did see a response in a subgroup of patients with nuclear genetic defects. And we've been able to take those learnings and design a new phase three trial, which is enriched for responders. So you can learn from it, but those are painful lessons to learn in the clinic. What's the path forward in Barth syndrome for stealth? So we've seen with patients who remained in the open label extension until the time we closed it out after four years, a more than 40% improvement in heart function. Um, For patients with Barth syndrome, we know from the natural history of this disease that that heart function and and particularly stroke volume and left and, and diastolic volume both decline over time. And so they have a very small amount of blood that they're actually pumping out to perfuse their organ systems. And that likely contributes to the progressive skeletal muscle weakness exercise intolerance and fatigue for these patients, which does worsen as they grow older. So for us to see a 40% improvement over time, um, that is significant. And the FDA has suggested that that may open the path to an accelerated approval. Uh, There is work to do, though. Even for accelerated approval, the FDA wants to make sure that, you know, you've, you've properly defined your effect size. So that will require us to kind of re- benchmark this potentially to natural history controls. Um, and they also want to understand how to design a phase four clinical trial so that we know how many patients to enroll. So we're doing some work right now to essentially conduct those modeling exercises in conjunction with ongoing discussions with the Division of Cardiology. I would say that, again, we, we've had a tough FDA experience and a lot of 
you know, inconsistent feedback from different review divisions. But I think the Division of Cardiology is trying to find a path. And they have met extensively with patient advocacy as well to better educate their teams about this rare condition. How unique is the problem stealth faces with the FDA? I don't think it's unique. I think that this is a a significant challenge in ultra rare drug development. You do have divisions in the FDA that are more willing to use the accelerated approval pathway, the division of oncology, for example, but you have different divisions with different perspectives on that and even different individuals within different divisions who, you know, have a lot more concerns about the FDA's track record, as it were, in enforcing post-marketing commitments. And so there is this reluctance to rely on that pathway. Um, And so I do think you have inconsistent answers with different people in different divisions in the FDA. And I think that this is very chilling for ultra-rare drug development. You know, we're in this situation where there's so many uncertainties. You know, there's this is the first therapy that's ever been tried for birth syndrome. There's no regulatory pathway defined. There's no biomarkers defined. Um, there's no previous clinical trials that have been done. And so you're kind of tilting at a lot of different windmills. And to add regulatory uncertainty into the mix, it's, you know, it's potentially chilling, again, for the development of ultra-rare diseases. Well, how does this, as a CEO, making decisions about what drugs to advance in a pipeline, how does this possibly change the thinking about pursuing an ultra-rare indication? I would think twice about it, for sure. I mean, again, we, we, we undertook what was a fairly discreet development effort in this disease, and we ended up with results that were too compelling for us to walk away from with good conscience. Um, we do have rare pediatric designation for this product for this indication. So investing some additional time and effort on regulatory activities and even natural history type studies was justifiable. Uh, What isn't justifiable, what I don't think we can raise financing for is another pre-approval clinical trial. And, And certainly I would think twice before, you know, moving into a similar situation again. Oh, what's the solution? How can the FDA do its job to ensure the safety and efficacy of therapies while making a viable pathway for ultra-rare disease drugs? So from a safety perspective, we've heard from the FDA that if the FDA could take risk versus benefit into consideration the way the way Europe does, quite frankly, with some of their approval pathways, that there wouldn't be an issue here because the safety profile of alamipratide has been fairly well characterized. We have mild to moderate injection site reactions. It's a once daily injection. And so there really isn't a safety concern here. I think it's the efficacy side of the equation. And and we have this, you know, you have this situation where there's a concern about type one versus type two error um, with the FDA, you know, really kind of looking for strong efficacy signals that I Again, we've heard from senior FDA officials that it's, it is as unethical to require placebo-controlled trials meeting tr- traditional p-values in ultra-rare diseases um, as it would be, you know, in the cases of, of situations like anthrax, right, where you use the animal rule to potentially approve drugs. So I think there's a recognition within the agency that the efficacy standards are really, really challenging to meet in these situations. Um, I, I just think 
that there's a little bit of consternation about how, to your point, they can navigate that and still comply with their statutory standards. Um, certainly some of the new proposals for accelerated approvals are both giving the FDA a little bit more teeth, right, in terms of their enforcement power, which should address some of the concerns the agency has about using that pathway. But there's also a proposal to have a centralized oversight within the FDA so that there's broad awareness of drugs that kind of go through that accelerated approval pathway to ensure better, better consistency. I think that consistency is key, like better consistency across different divisions and different reviewers within the FDA would certainly, as a CEO, right, allow you to calibrate your risks much better. Rini McCarthy, President and CEO of Stealth Biotherapeutics. Rini, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.